Hello to you, dear listener. Welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Welcome to another episode. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We have a lovely, lovely episode lined up to you today. We have Stalianos Kampakis. And on this episode, we talk about all things data scientist because, of course, Stalianos is known as the data scientist. And we get into decentralized finance or DeFi and the wild west of services that's ensued and the impending regulations that are being placed on blockchain. We talk about this data scientist handbook, a book that Stelianos has written, and how data science can help you and how to do data strategy correctly and how to get started with data scientists. Loads of stuff around data science in this episode. It's a really good chat, lots of learning. And so once again, I welcome Stalianos. So my name is Stelios. Full name is Stelianos Kabakis, but Stelios is just easier. I'm a data scientist, or that's at least the label I go by these days. And I'm involved in many, many different things. Um, so I help startups um, understand how to better use data. I'm uh, helping bigger organizations uh, with pretty much the same thing, involved in R&D initiatives, teaching in a few different universities like UCL, London Business School, uh, associated with some entrepreneurship centers of universities and accelerators. I'm a published author, having published a decision maker's handbook to data science and working on two other books. And finally, I'm also quite active in the blockchain space, recently working in DeFi, which seems to have become a very popular uh, buzzword. And, you know, there are many things being discussed around DeFi. Um, I'm very happy to be here. And I hope we're going to have a very interesting conversation covering any or ideally all of those topics. Hopefully we can live up to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's jump straight in. So what was that buzzword you were saying? DeFi, decentralized finance. All right, okay. Should we start there? Tell us about decentralized finance. <laughs> yeah, sure. Is this audio only or is this only video? Because I just wanted to share something, like a website called DeFi Pulse. Uh, we can we can say what we see. So D E F I Pulse. Cool. Okay. Dot com. Yeah, which uh, shows the total value locked in DeFi protocols. Uh, you can see DeFi started fairly recently. Um, I guess in quarter four, practically of 2017, and now the total value locked is close to 61 billion or so. And what DeFi is, it, this, this describes a set of projects that are trying to create a whole new financial layer that replicates, I'd say, all and maybe even more of the functionality provided by the mainstream financial system, whether mm. it's lending and borrowing, exchanges, derivatives, payments, assets, and a few other projects in specialist areas. Um, it's a huge thing. It's growing. There are many things being discussed about it because, as you understand, it is a target for regulation. So there was a, mm. there, there, there is um, a very big story now going on around Uniswap, which is one of the mm. biggest projects. And now the regulators are essentially they have forced Uniswap to remove some of the assets that were being uh, that landed on the platform. 
But in one way or another, I think it's one of those, let's say, technologies. I mean, it's not the technology per se, but, but you know what I mean, which is going to change the, I guess, the shape of not only finance, but probably the world within the next 10 years. And I think even if regulators try to regulate the hell out of it, I still think that, you know, once you open that box, you can never go back completely, right? It's like Bitcoin. Mm. Uh, it's here to stay in one form or, or another. Mm. So is this like, um, I'm trying, I'm playing catch up now. So is this like essentially offering, you know, financial services or, or something with under the, uh, on top of blockchain then? Have I got that right? Yes, correct. So they, mm. for, for example, with DEXs, decentralized exchanges, as they call mm. them, like like Uniswap, the idea is that you have a, an exchange which, which can operate 24-7 and you don't really need to worry about middlemen. Uh, and they use uh, this mechanism called liquidity pools, and the people participating in this are called liquidity providers, where there's essentially a pool of money, like a pot, and then you, me, anyone can just decide to go there and take some money out, right? Uh, mm. Also, this comes at a price, and then the pool has to rebalance itself. So there's a very nice protocol which ensures that there is a fair balance between all the assets without really requiring a broker to arrange for this. So you can see why this is so interesting and so and so powerful. But obviously, you understand why someone would want to regulate this, right? Because mm-hmm. you can have anyone without KYC exchanging all kinds of, of assets 24-7. Mm. It's a bit of a wild west out there, isn't it? <laughs> it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is sort of uh, decentralized loans then, I suppose, is it? Yeah, yeah, it can, they can do uh, borrowing and, and lending as well. Uh-huh. Um, there's also another platform called Synthetics, uh, which, as the name implies, deals with synthetic instruments. Um, and they, actually, this is the platform that was chased out of Uniswap because they have blockchain-based synthetic instruments which are pegged to publicly listed companies. Right, so instead of buying a share or a stock, you buy a crypto derivative for the Tesla stock, and obviously the regulators wow. don't want that. Right, um, you can understand why. And we're talking about some fairly complex like protocols. Then you have something like uh, Yearn Finance, where Yearn Finance essentially you just put your money in there, and then this goes across all those different protocols and tries to make money for you because. The way that all of these protocols work in a decentralized manner is that they essentially provide a small financial incentive for you to provide some kind of money, liquidity, into the system, and then you earn earn some kind of interest rate. But because there are so many different crypto pairs, right, and so many different projects, it's really difficult to find the best deal. And that's why someone came up with this project, Yearn Finance, which essentially what it tries to do is it tries to optimize, you know, your assets by reallocating them across all those different protocols to guarantee some kind of high return, which can go up to 22% per year. I mean, mm. that's guaranteeing quotes, right? Because like you guys said, that's the Wild West. But then again, <laughs> when you compare this against interest rates of 0%, you understand why some people might want to take this, uh, this risk. Now, disclaimer, me personally, I've not put money into year in finance, but I've invested in other, um, in other protocols. Synthetics, right? Have you invested in that or done anything with that? No, I mean, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of derivatives. I mean, uh-huh. that's that's my thing. I think 
I really don't, I think derivatives, maybe because it's one of the things that caused the financial crash in 2008. I think it's a bit of a dangerous idea, even though it's interesting. Um, I prefer some of the more, some of the simpler protocols. I like mm -hmm. Uniswap. Uh, I like the idea of staking in certain protocols. Ethereum, you can now stake uh, coins and get back Ethereum version 2. Um, in one way or another, the main takeaway from that is that if you're hold, holding crypto, you can just you can earn interest rate on that if you wish. So as long as you understand the, the risks, basically. Yeah, the synthetics one is interesting, though, because I guess that's pegged one way and not the other, right? So, you know, that depends on the value of the actual stock, really, rather than the actual the synthetic stock, if that makes sense. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I've not looked into synthetics uh, as much, to be honest with you. Mm. But uh, yeah, I guess that's that's the idea. I mean, what's the idea of that? Is it because I mean, I've tried to do a little bit of trading with with stock before, and I've even written algorithms to try and figure out the best time to do almost like um, you know instantaneous type transactions, like micro transactions, day trading essentially, and you just can't execute fast enough because you have to go through a broker. So I presume in a synthetic market, actually, you probably could execute fast enough. Um, so, I mean, you're, you're restricted by the Ethereum blockchain mm. and how busy that is. But I, I guess technologically speaking, we'd be better off using a protocol of this kind because you're just removing the intermediaries yeah. rather than yeah. using the current system as it is. Now, regarding the Ethereum blockchain, one of the problems we, that all these protocols have is that Ethereum, and they're trying to solve this now with various updates, became too slow and expensive. Like maybe you wanted to borrow, I don't know, $200, and then you had to pay $150 in gas fees. Um, and hopefully this will be resolved soon. That's with the uh, proof of work, is that? rather than the, Yeah, the, yeah, the, now they're moving yeah. on to proof of stake and... Proof of stake. That's there is another update yeah. very recently, which I didn't honestly didn't really have the time to review <laughs> to see exactly what happened. But yeah, yeah, that's interesting. When you go back to the to the other site that you just had open a moment DeFi ago, Pulse? That's, that's the one. Yeah, you were talking about the the different types of chains there. You talked about Ethereum. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's multi-chain in there as well. Do they tend to be built on one or another? Like, is it? Yeah, most of them are built on Ethereum. Yeah, Ethereum is king in this space. Ethereum is king. Now, is, is Ethereum still going to be the best choice in two years with Cardano and Polkadot? I don't know. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if in two or three years those projects overtake Ethereum because mm. the way I see the blockchain space right now, it, it reminds me a lot of operating systems in the 90s. <laughs> uh, I was an adult in the 90s. For those of you who, who, who are hearing my voice, you probably guessed that I'm about 35. <laughs> but <laughs> I was a kid in the 90s and I remember... Uh, you know, Amiga, Atari, Windows, uh, Mac, uh, Linux, which uh, back then it was the early days of the internet, so you didn't really have any as many resources. So you'd have to be a super nerd if you actually were using Linux without <laughs> really having a proper reason to use it. And you had all these different operating systems vying for power. Uh, and I think the situation with blockchain is, is quite similar right now. So I don't think that there's going to be one blockchain that survives but i think there's going to be a dominant solution and two three other solutions which are close behind mm. i would bet 
it's going to be either the, the primary solution for smart contracts. Is either going to be Ethereum, Polkadot, or Cardano? But, you know, it might be something else. Uh, could be Solana, could be the internet computer. Um, we'll see. What is it that you think will drive the winner? I mean, is it how fast they execute? Uh, is it the cost of running them? You know, what, what do you think it is that, that's going to play into that? So I think we might uh, find ourselves in front of a situation where Ethereum might be the dominant one because it's the oldest project mm -hmm. in this area. And then other blockchains might actually have better technicals, right? But they might be unable to become the number one solution simply because they're not um, as old. They don't have uh, like a big user base. They, they, I mean, in technology, I think you always um, have this phenomenon, right? Of uh, no, I wouldn't say winner take all, but there's like a considerable first mover advantage due to network effects, right? Mm -hmm. So I don't think that Android is the best open source mobile system that could have existed. You know, I don't think that Mac computers are perfect, nor, nor Windows. Mm. Uh, but it doesn't matter because all these solutions, they're not just competing on technical specifications. <laughs> mm. That's really cool. Um, you say, you mentioned about the, you know, uh, people coming in and, and put regulations on this sort of stuff. Is there any immediate threat right now? from any particular regulators or is everyone just is it just like a bum rush to try and get as much as we can before these regulations start coming in because of course a lot of fintechs are experiencing a lot of um well fcsc regulated uh fintechs are, are, are becoming the norm you know we say the wild west when when monzo first came out and starling and and chip and things like that and now they're trying they're scrambling to get fcsc regulated because it gives that sense of security and things like that yeah is there like i say is there any immediate threat you see right now and or, or, or is everyone just trying to build what they can and and experiment before the regulations come in whenever that might be I think there is because uh, the regulator recently attacked Uniswap and forced them to remove uh, synthetic stocks and shares. Mm -hmm. um, so who knows where they're going to strike next, right? Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that coming, but they definitely are not going to uh, regulate blockchain out of existence, mm -hmm. nor do I think they can regulate DeFi out of existence given its decentralized nature. Mm -hmm. uh, in one way or another, I think that we're also going to see uh, more things happening in a decentralized manner uh, in the way that while Uniswap is a decentralized protocol, it has a centralized interface. Mm -hmm. um, I can imagine then, you know, even running interfaces in a decentralized way. I had looked into this a few months back and apparently there is a way to do this. Uh, I guess the people who would try to do something like this would effectively try to make a project of this kind completely immune to regulation Mm -hmm. So there's a possibility there. But obviously, the, the thing is that now there are many dynamics at play. So we see institutional investors investing money in cryptocurrency, primarily Bitcoin. And we also hear about, you know, Bitcoin ETF, uh, by Grayscale, Ethereum ETF, this and that, which means that on one hand, it's going to be very difficult for a government to regulate these things out of existence when you have companies investing billions in those assets. On the other hand, the projects themselves, they're not... The biggest one, at least, they're not they're not incentivized any longer 
to become fully decentralized, mm-hmm. unless this actually hurts the credibility in the eyes of a large part of their community. If, for example, I don't know, JP Morgan or some other investment bank shows up and they're like, hey, you know, what would be amazing if we would invest, I don't know, $20 billion into Uniswap. Uh, but you know what you would Uniswap need? It would need KYC, right? So it's obviously in, in Uniswap's interest to try and do that, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you see this interesting dynamic at play that on one hand, it becomes more difficult to regulate this thing. On the other hand, the actual protocols, they stop being as incentivized to become completely decentralized. And the truth is that anytime we saw uh, projects in computer science existing completely in the margin, now I'm talking about crypto anarchism, cyber anarchism, like, oh, you know, we're going to be completely off the grid, off the network, everything's encrypted, yada, 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 mm. yada. They never really became popular. So when, you know, if, if you are in the development team, or, you know, the CEO of a project in this space, and you see there's institutional money flying around, I guess your first instinct is not to try and create some kind of crypto anarchy utopia, but like, oh, how can we get, this, you know, billions in, you know, from, from mm-hmm. JP Morgan and, and Goldman's. Mm. When the carrot is dangled, you're going to want to take it, right? And, well, it's just... Um... Well, I'm interested in I'm interested in how that sort of ties in with things that we've seen recently. When you think about like um, the the GameStop stuff with the actual you know Reddit users trying to short well beat the short on the hedge funds and things like that, and all of this sort of was, was driven around the same sort of time that there was this huge boom in crypto. Like obviously, you know, the billions coming in from the likes of someone like JP Morgan is going to be is going to drive a lot of interest. But I do wonder whether this is going to you know, is this going to be an opportunity to unleash the power of the internet and actually make it a fully decentralized thing? Uh, yeah, potentially. Uh, now, the thing with, but I guess these are different topics, right? Uh, mm. GameStop is a very interesting case. <laughs> it's interesting to see how these people managed to beat hedge funds in their own game. But yeah. it was also interesting to see how centralization ended up being very bad for the people who invested in GameStop mm. uh, because Robinhood paused all trades, right? And if you look into the story, you can see that why they did this, right? It's Citadel was behind this and it's a very shady affair. So essentially the little man was once again screwed <laughs> because of mm. that. This could happen in a decentralized system. Mm. Now, mm. but yeah, I, th- I think that what we're going to see with DeFi is that we're probably going to see a gradient from projects which are completely decentralized to projects which are more like mainstream. I mean, take a look at Monero, for example, right? Which is ideally, you know, I think it's the coin which really represents Satoshi Nakamoto's original vision, whomever this person or team of people were. That's the founder of Bitcoin, isn't it, for anyone else? Yeah, exactly. And And one of the ideas was that you're going to have an untraceable currency. Uh, Monero can do that. Then again, this raises the question, okay, that's untraceable. Why would someone want to use something Mm -hmm. which is untraceable? You see where I come from? Mm -hmm. Potential nefarious purposes. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, Exactly. So Monero, I don't think, is ever going to break into into the mainstream. Mm. It's one of the, you know, it's a coin that it's not going to go away. It's going to stay there, right? Uh, but I don't see this becoming number one, for example. Do you do you see the um, 
you know, we were talking about governments and governments deregulating things out of existence or regulating things out of existence, I suppose, would be the actual way it's happening. Um, Are you seeing governments start to adopt crypto blockchain themselves? Oh, yeah, of course. There's this whole space of uh, the government stable coins, basically. Mm. Um, I can't remember what they're called. Um, Central Bank something. I can't remember the full acronym. Uh, and it, it kind of makes sense because uh, what we, this will help governments get more control over their citizens, essentially. I guess in countries like China, this is very, very attractive because you can issue currency. And this is actually what happened, I think, in, in El Salvador, where they made Bitcoin a legal tender. Mm-hmm. The idea is that you're going to, to uh, you can hand out some benefits, but then you can also track how these are being spent, right? Mm-hmm. Or you can say that, look, you, you only can spend this money for those and that purposes, which is a bit interesting from, because you're using uh, what is essentially what was initially decentralized technology to control a population to some extent in a fairly centralized manner. Mm. Yeah, it's really interesting to your point before about, you know, mentioning the origins of Bitcoin and the idea being to have something that was decentralized, untraceable pretty much, has actually generated the opposite. Yeah. So there are always these dynamics at play. And uh, it's funny how, for example, Bitcoin started off as a decentralized currency and now it's taking off because of institutional investment by the mainstream and has ended up being some kind of digital gold. Mm. So has it really accomplished Satoshi Nakamoto's original vision? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But blockchain in one form or another, it's it's unstoppable, right? It's here to stay. So, And I think this is what governments are realizing, that it's, it's no longer a fad. Mm. Uh, I think we, we're going to very soon reach a tipping point where... If a government says, oh, I'm going to ban cryptocurrencies or do or that, this or that, then another country is going to come up with very loose regulations and it's going to attract billions, right? Mm. Uh, And for example, China banned crypto mining. No one cared, right? (laughs) So the the hash rate went down and then everyone just moved to different countries. I thought that had an effect. I thought they... They actually did something with that, like actually had because it was it causing blackouts or something like that, or am I getting another incident? Yeah, I think things slowed down and then they went back to normal. It's like China basically they they, they didn't just like they actually asked uh, or they made illegal for people to actually own the machines that mm-hmm. mine Bitcoin. So mining farms and individuals had to actually move to different countries. Yeah, I saw they had they had uh, pictures on the news of them steamrolling a lot of machines. Wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, isn't it? And but 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 I mean, it, it's unstoppable, right? So the 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 system rebalanced itself, and you know the funny thing is that there are some people who will be um, conservative against Bitcoin, no matter what. Uh, and you know you hear these people saying, "Oh, Bitcoin is not really decentralized because you know 50% of the mining power is in China, and what happens if China decides to do this and that?" And then China uh, bans mining, and then people move to other countries, and then the mm. same people will say, "Oh, you see, Bitcoin is not really safe because this and that." I think, mm. if anything, this proves how powerful of an idea uh, proof of work was. Mm. And hopefully the same thing will happen with with proof of stake and and other types of blockchains. 
Well, that um, that that DeFi that we were just looking at a second ago, its its value starts to skyrocket. I think sort of middle of last year, I guess. Um, what what's the reason for causing that that, that huge upward tick in in uh, in value? The Bitcoin having so you can see there's a very strong correlation between Bitcoin and other. Uh, assets and then as soon as uh, uh, having event occurs then the price of the bitcoin rises you know it's the demand and supply thing and then other things they're taking off and people are looking into investments uh, this plus actual maturity of projects you know usually you get this like perfect storm i guess because then there's more investments flying in these projects and then uh, you know things move at a faster pace so that's kind of a virtuous cycle uh, we're going to see a crash probably. Uh, I mean, if some people were like, oh, we're in a bear market, not sure about that. We're probably going to end up being in a bear market one way or another until February. So maybe things are going to slow down for two, three, four years. But yeah, this this played um, you know, a huge role. But I'd say that if you if you go back to the curve, um, you know, there was like a peak around May and then there was a crash mm-hmm. and then it's going to stabilize. Uh, probably the next few years, then we're going to see another um, another bull run. So that would be similar to probably the first time around with Bitcoin, I suppose, when it got to, what was it, about $20,000 it got to first time around in what, 2016, 2015, 2016, something like that? I think it was 2017. Was it? Am I too, am yeah. I, am I too, uh, too early? You're ahead of the game there, Chris. <laughs> yeah. 2017, yeah. yeah. And then, yeah, I think it was something, I think it went up to 25 at the peak or something. Yeah, 20 sounds about right. But mm. uh, then it died a death and everyone sold all their Bitcoin, including myself. And then and then it came back up again, like last year. So are you finding then that there's, are there more people involved in that? Is that also what's driving this, uh, this, this spike, this growth? Because there's a huge amount of talk around Bitcoin and uh, blockchain and crypto just in general. Yeah, I think that uh, now it has broken into the mainstream. So it's more like, you know, it's. I remember when I first read the original white paper behind Bitcoin, right? And it was, well, like, you know, my mind was blown. I was a PhD student back then at UCL. And I was like, whoa, this sounds like an amazing piece of technology. But other than it sounding cool, none of us. I remember in the computer science lab at that time, at least the people who were in that room thought that it was anything more than a very cool piece of tech. No one mm. thought it was going to go up to to that price point. And I guess the you know the, 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 there are many uncertainties, right? So again, I don't think that someone who invested money early on Bitcoin and now they're a billionaire, I'm not sure whether they really had the fundamental reason to invest back then because I guess there have been so many different types of technologies that someone could have invested in. Tesla was, a, you know, was also a great investment if you invested in this early on or Amazon. Mm. I guess the people who invested early, some of them, maybe they had some key insights. Maybe other people were just lucky. But now we're, I think, you know, we, we're beyond the tipping point where Bitcoin has broken into the mainstream. We know this because some big companies have acquired Bitcoin. So it's a completely different conversation. When did you first um, start investing and, and really get involved? When did your love for blockchain start? So I started becoming active in blockchain, uh, very active during the first ICO boom. Mm-hmm. So it was around 2016, 17 or, or so. And what I liked was that after, once Ethereum came out and you could create smart contracts, then this whole concept of a token economy came about and there were so many different use cases 
and I started doing some work on those use cases because I was never really that interested in doing research on the fundamental problems of blockchain, like uh, fundamental problems of blockchain. I mean, things like consensus algorithms and all that. These are super interesting, but these are the kind of problems that I know that in one way or another, I knew they were going to be solved and that's just going to be solved, you know? So it's like, you know, I'm not sure if you hear anyone telling you, oh, I'm doing research in operating systems. No one cares about that. You know, most problems in operating <laughs> systems were solved like 25 years ago or something. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, but what I was interested in is, it was the use cases that this technology enables, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the applications, which are countless. So for example, this whole idea around DeFi, you know, it, it, it's based upon... Uh, some very very smart principles and upon smart contracts. So it doesn't really. So it doesn't matter whether Ethereum has this consensus algorithm or this or that. The idea works in a layer on top of this, mm -hmm. which goes back to what I mentioned around operating systems. That you know, if you want to create a pretty cool app, let's say you're going to create a video game, you don't really conserve yourself with how you know Windows or Mac or Linux handles you know mm -hmm. uh, multi-threading or memory allocation or any of those things. So this is what really drew me into this space of, of blockchain. And the thing what I find most fascinating these days is the space of decentralized finance. And then something else which I found fascinating is what is the applications that blockchain can bring into around data, right? Data science, mm -hmm. the, which I think is, is it's a not very mature space. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a few projects, nothing super impressive. So we might be seeing more things in this year in the near future. Mm. Are you are you working on anything then? Like you, I was going to say, like you... You've obviously got a history in, in data science and and whatever. Are you are you more of an admirer at this this point, just trying to see what's going on, or are you actually trying to come up with something, or you know, seeing what you can do to to leverage these expertise that you have? Yeah, so I'm advising a DeFi project called Polen, and then I'm also advising um, a data science slash blockchain project called Within You, uh, which deals with um, data data collection from like different types of, of devices on the blockchain. Still early stages. If anyone wants to 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 talk more about this, feel free to, to shoot me over an email. But you know, I'm really open to ideas and suggestions. I think there are many moving parts. Um, so I could easily find myself in a different place within six months or twelve months or or so. So those particular projects, what what problems are they aiming to solve? Uh, so Poland deals with um, the creation of a decentralized index, something which doesn't really exist in the DeFi space now, something like decentralized ETF. And then uh, within you deals with uh, data collection and data sharing on a more massive scale and data monetization as well. So there have been a few projects on that front around democratizing data, but uh, nothing which has worked massively well. Uh, so for example, if let's say you participate I don't know, in a clinical trial or if you, you know, you're using your phone and your phone is recording data about you or whatever, uh, then this data goes into a centralized repository and it's used by a company or companies, etc. I think through blockchain, you can actually have ownership of your data and choose how to monetize it. And I think that's a very, very powerful idea. Uh, so I can see that blockchain could enable some kind of data economy where uh, anyone can record data and then, then can share it with interesting parties. That's obviously a daunting task given how many different types of data exist. Mm. Uh, and also, and then you have to take into account things like data quality, right? But those concerns aside, I think it's still a very powerful concept. 
So, I mean, when you're advising the, these companies, do they um, do they always come to you with blockchain in mind, or do you are you able to sort of find many different applications for blockchain that we just generally don't think of? <laughs> I know it's a bit of a nebulous question, but <laughs> no, that's a great question. So, for blockchain specifically, yeah, because blockchain um, using blockchain is a big task, right? Mm. Well, there's, a, there's quite a big learning curve, I suppose, for a start. Yeah, exactly. Which means that you, you, you. I'm, I'm speaking to people who I know that they are interested, they, you know, to work with blockchain. So it's not like, you know, you just propose to someone that yeah, you should use a blockchain. Uh, it's different with data science because with mm. data science, maybe you know, I might be talking to a company that has certain data in, stored somewhere and they're not using it. And then I'm like, hey, have you guys thought about doing X, Y, Z? So that's a different, you know, that's a different discussion. And also data science is way more accessible in the sense that, uh, you know, you can, all you need to to do data science some most of the time, uh, or I guess a significant part of you know, the time, is you just need to set a data set and some algorithms, right? Whereas blockchain is a whole layer. It's like an infrastructure layer. So you need to build this and then build something on top of that. So it's way more complicated. It's not something you can just do, you know, in two weeks and mm. get results. Mm. Do, do you tend to find that there's a lot of resistance to adopting a blockchain solution in that scenario then? Uh, yes and no. I mean, it depends because, you know, you can talk about resistance to adopting blockchain. If you're talking about certain industries where uh, there are like products based on blockchain that are trying to replace the old products, so supply chain is an example. So there are products in the supply chain, and then you can just do uh, the same thing but using a blockchain. That's this is one area where some companies might meet resistance, right? Uh, not not might meet resistance. Basically, might might be resistant to change because they're like, hey, you know what? Like we we already have a solution that's working. Why would I need to do this in uh, in blockchain? Um, and I've seen something similar in data science as well. Mm -hmm. But the problem with blockchain is that it's very radical, right? And uh, it can seem a bit esoteric and not tangible, which is something that, which actually shares with data science. Uh, it's, it's not very tangible, which means that you do meet this resistance to change. The, the difference being that blockchain, even a simple blockchain implementation, requires quite often fundamental uh, changes, right, to the way an organization operates. So it's a bit more... So it, so it can be a bit challenging in this regard. Yeah. So I mean, like with with, with that sort of supply chain example, are you able to give us an a, you know a little bit of an overview, a brief example explanation of how things would be different, for, you know, in a traditional sense versus a, a blockchain solution? Yes, absolutely. So the idea behind using a blockchain in the supply chain is that uh, when you're working that. In a supply chain, you have all these different moving parts, and blockchain is great for auditing, and then you'd be able to audit faster and better if something goes wrong. It's used a lot in provenance. So Walmart has a case study around the successful a case study around the successful implementation of blockchain for the provenance of foods. Uh, so that's a successful case study. Uh, but do, you know, do I think that every company would be capable of adopting a blockchain solution? fast and efficiently well depends right because mm. then you also have to take organizational culture into play yeah well i mean i've gone through an awful lot of um 
digital transformations, to use another buzzword. Um, and I think uh, a lot. I, I don't. I I don't even know with, with some of them. Depending on the level of the organization, I don't even know where I'd start with with mm-hmm. a blockchain solution. Just because I think, um, although everybody understands, I think these days there's 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 a more broad understanding of crypto and blockchain and what it is in its in its general sense in terms of how you actually apply that to your own solutions i'm not sure that um i feel like that's a little bit of a mental leap uh for a lot of people still i'm really curious about how you actually managed to sell that you see <laughs> no that's the thing i've never really sold blockchain to anyone it's only mm. people that have come to me i've sold data science many times sure. i can sell the idea of data strategy to someone like if you you're working in digital transformation if, if you're talking to a company and they have lots of data and they're doing nothing with it i can sell them the concept of using data science to to improve all kinds of things and if, if they're risk averse i can create a plan which make sure that they implement data science in a very, um, let's say, defensive way without disrupting pretty much anything, right? Mm-hmm. In a very safe and, and slow way, if that's what they're after. But you can't really talk companies into using blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe you have developed a product and then you walk in the office with this product and you're like, hey, I have this solution for you, buy it, which is a different, entirely different proposition. Yeah, well, I wonder whether it's one of those things where, you know, as we start seeing better and faster applications of blockchain over the years, whether it's where it's going to be a a logical step for organizations that, oh, it's obvious you would just do this with blockchain. In the same sense as like, you know, I think a decade ago, it would have been a much harder sell to an organization to say, have you tried microservices? Whereas these days, it's more of a you know, oh well, that would be an obvious solution to this problem or that problem. Do you know what I mean? It's it's more of a progressive. Yeah, but but I guess there's a fundamental difference there between data science and AI and blockchain, mm. and that's what I've observed in my work working across both fields. Is that whereas data science expands vertically, uh, not vertically, sorry, horizontally across verticals, mm. uh, we've seen verticals adopting data science in an asynchronous way. So you have some industries that are 20 years ahead, others are 20 years behind. <laughs> uh, blockchain has mostly uh, advanced by creating entirely new things out of yeah. nothing. Uh, DeFi being a prominent example. So whereas data, data science has been more about, oh, you know, the insurance industry, um, you know, it's not very forward looking. Uh, what if you guys replace what you're doing with more advanced machine learning models and that's going to help you do yada, yada, yada. It's very different to saying, oh, we have, I don't know, a completely new way of buying assets. <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, so let's just throw billions into this thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that, well, I would guess that from your website being thedatascientist.com that you would be data science and AI first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. That's my primary focus, I'd say. Because even within blockchain, um, I do some work on blockchain, but my work is more on the algorithmic side, th- things which relate to math and algorithms, right? Mm. So this can be tokenomics, uh, protocol design, incentives, um, this kind of things. And datascientist.com, I mean, that's a pretty impressive website. Where, where, uh, oh, how, thanks, yeah. Uh, how did you get that URL for a start? 
<laughs> oh, well, I, I can tell you it wasn't cheap. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> it wasn't cheap. <laughs> was, did somebody already have it then or was it, you know, did you have yeah, to? Yeah, yeah, I had to buy it from someone. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I hate it when you have to enter into those negotiations. It's never particularly but, pleasant. Uh, it? But it was too good of a name to let it go. So it was like, yeah, I'm going to make this work. So I'm the data scientist. <laughs> was it a domain squatter? Was it was it one of those ones where they were just, you know, it was an advert holding on to it? Uh, there was actually nothing on that domain. So yeah. I think someone had just bought this domain, waiting for someone else to buy. Yeah. How much did it cost? Oh come on, Sam! You can't ask that one. <laughs> I can tell you, it cost about uh, half of what datascientist.com would cost. <laughs> so it seemed a pretty good deal to data scientist, but I'm like, actually, I prefer the data scientist yeah. because it sounds a bit like the economist or yeah. it sounds a bit as if I'm like, you know, the data scientist, like I'm the man. <laughs> so it somehow works even better. I think. And, and this has now become an activity podcast where you, dear listener, can go and look up that and work <laughs> out <laughs> how much has been spent here. Um, so anyway, that, I mean, the, the uh, you, so you wrote, wrote a book about data science as well so you wrote the decision makers handbook uh, to data science so talk to us about about uh, what that is what made you write a book in the first place yeah thanks great question actually i've written up three books uh, one book is about to get published soon mm-hmm. i just have to chase my lovely fellow co-authors <laughs> who are like a few months behind schedule so if they're listening to this, that's chop, a little chop. slap on the wrist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to this, then this is a wake-up call. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> and then there's another book. And for that other book, I, I probably have to chase my literary agent. I've not heard from her for some time. Uh, my third book being more about, um, it's like a popular science book about the history of data science oh, and wow. philosophy of uncertainty and all those kinds of things. My first book, The Decision Maker's Handbook to Data Science, as the name implies, is more of a business handbook. And it was born out of my many years of experience of working in this area, which I call data science for decision makers. Mm. So when I finished my PhD in UCL, I lived in a, in a tech bubble. Uh, as in, you know, everything is about the algorithms and machine learning and neural networks and blah, blah, blah. And then I, I, I falsely assumed that uh, change, let's say whether we're talking about within an organization or a grander scale happens purely through technology. And then I realized that the main challenge with data science, it was not so much algorithmic, but it was more around explaining key concepts to the people who actually hold the keys to power. Mm, 100%. It's always people. Yeah, and, and- and, and, and the funny thing is that this is not only something relevant for big organizations where you might find, you know, people in key positions who are a bit older and they are, um, you know, and maybe they don't understand the technology that well. But this can also happen with startups uh, simply because someone might create a new company and, then, you know, they might simply have no real exposure to hard tech and they might just baffled by data science. And essentially, the, the correct application of data science, most of the time, 90% of the time, it comes down to the basics, data strategy, data quality, uh, all those little things which are... Uh, maybe more important than the actual algorithms. And I started running a workshop series. And then this is what inspired me to write the book. This book was Mm. based on these workshops. And then these workshops now, they've switched to actually, they've led to the creation of a company called the Tesseract Academy. Another thing for our listeners to (laughs) to search for (laughs) on Google. 
There's going to be plenty of things in the show notes, I think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is essentially a vehicle to explain deep tech to decision makers and the public, mm. right? So we now we're not only covering data science and AI, we're covering blockchain, project management, product development, and uh, organizational culture. And we're also doing many, many free things. So I'm the organizer of Data Science London Meetup and also Data Science in Marketing and the AI Creativity and Blockchain Meetups. And now I'm putting everything under the Tesseract brand as some kind of public service, right? Let's educate the public about uh, data science (laughs) in Mm. any way possible and and related technologies. Oh, that's very cool. What would be like, I'm, you know, I'm I'm a somewhat entrepreneur or manager or whatever. What would be a one-line strap line, how data science, how data science can can help me because i'm you know it's all new to me um i wouldn't know how where to begin with what what, how data science would 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 help me or whatever what would be like a clear and concise way of explaining that yeah that's a great question so i think um in a very short and concise way uh, data science simply helps a business do things more efficiently um usually this means uh, faster yeah, or more accurately, or in an automated way. Ideally, all three, mm. right? Which, in one way or another, this is going to lead either to reduce costs or higher profits or margins, or again, ideally, in all of those three things. Now, this can materialize in many different ways. So, on one hand, you have a super complicated use case like autonomous vehicles, self-driving cars. That's like a, That's like a huge topic, many difficult problems that's going to potentially change uh, society and the economy on a fundamental level. On the other hand, you might have a niche shop and you just want a recommender system so that your clients buy more stuff. Mm. <laughs> but in both of those cases, we're talking about some form of automation, um, some form of increased efficiency and, and, and accuracy. Interesting. Uh, presumably using data, you know, wherever, wherever that might come from, whether it's yeah, exactly. website statistics, whether it's... But but you don't always need data. That's the thing, that in some cases, like autonomous vehicles, you're using data, but not in the way that people think you're using data. So 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 when you have an autonomous vehicle, it can also collect, depending on how it's set up, right, because that's a very technical discussion, it can also collect data from its environment directly. Mm. So you do have these systems which can learn data point by data point without you having to collect data first. But obviously for me, data science is not only about the algorithms. I think that the company starts doing data science the moment that they start collecting data. And this is one of the mistakes that I've seen many companies are doing. They're like, oh, I'm going to... um, you know, uh, wait for a couple of years until I collect enough data and then I'm going to hire a data scientist. Mm. And then in those two years, I've ma- they've made so many wrong decisions. Yeah. Uh, they've, they've lost immense, you know, they've basically, they have forgone a huge amount of value. And I see this a lot with startups, unfortunately. And for startups, it really hurts because you know that they could have raised money on a better valuation. Mm. So how would you recommend a startup getting involved with that then? How, how does a startup... Well, I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you don't know what you don't know. I mean, maybe a better question is when people come to you looking for something, is it is, is it that they're coming to you and saying... Stelios, I want, I want data science. Or are they coming to you saying, I need to sell more and I don't know what my customers want? 
Um, so that's a great question. Uh, something which I've noticed recently is that the space of data science has matured to the point that some startups are actively looking for data strategy, mm -hmm. which is great because in a few years back, I actually had to explain this thing. Don't get me wrong. I still many times have to explain this thing to startups, right? Um, mm -hmm. And it's a bit frustrating. But most of in most of the in the majority of the conversations, someone might actually be looking for a data scientist, and then I have to explain to them that look, guys, you need to take a step back and you need to think about your problems in a different way. It's a very frustrating part of the job, to be honest with you, because I've also released so much free content out there to help people better <laughs> understand those mm. problems. But many many companies that just want to stick their heads in the sand and say, no, we have this very specific technical problem and we need to find a solution and, this, and what they, maybe they don't want to accept. What they will eventually accept is that this one problem, the thing they have, it branches out to many other problems. Mm. Most of them not just being technical. Some of them can also relate to their business model, right? And this is where things can get really ugly because you've placed a big bet on your idea, your model, your methods, essentially driving your business model forward. And maybe mm. um, this idea you have, uh, it, it's not going to work out. And I'm talking from a technical perspective, right? Maybe, you know, we have one, two, three algorithms which are supposed to do X, Y, Z. You know what I mean? And, and then maybe they can't get the algorithms to work in the required performance. They want them to work in. And then they come to me and they're like, hey, can you fix it? And my question is, okay, you're trying to do something which is very new. No one has done this before. First of all, what do you think this can actually be done? Um, quite often they're looking for a quick fix. Mm. Funny enough, I had like a conversation of this kind recently and it was like, yeah, I don't think there's a quick fix to that. You know, your use <laughs> case is not vanilla. So I can't just say do X, Y, Z. Um, because quite often they don't want to accept it. They're still trying to find this quick fix. It sounds a bit like the, you know, the fitness and health and diet industry in some cases. Yeah. <laughs> With the magic data pill or something. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, it's in every industry, you know, it's what I do is probably what Chris does. You know, you get a lot of people coming to wanting to fix the thing. It's like, well, if you're there from the beginning, if you've got that strategy going into something, that's where it's going to have the most effect, not just, you know, a mindless attempt at trying to do it yourself, but that's the hardest sell, I guess. Yes. Yes, exactly. And you know, because you know how the things are done, right? And again, it's similar to the fitness and industry and doctors and all that, right? You know, so if you like smoking and drinking and not following healthy habits, and then you find yourself in a doctor's office, and you're like, how did I end up being here? The correct <laughs> answer is, you know, maybe 10 years ago, you should have done X, Y, Z. And you, we see the big picture. And I guess one difficult part of service providers is that if the market does not see the big picture, you have to educate them on that. And this can be challenging on its own because then, then you have to sell this process of educating them. And it's one of the reasons I wrote the book. It's one of the reasons I run all these free events because I'm like, there's no other way. A significant part of my work, maybe the majority of my work is still technical, mm -hmm. uh, probably due to the fact that it's just easier to work for companies that know that they need something specific they know how to work with data scientists. It's just the way things are. And they know they can pay. And I know they can pay me the rates I want to get paid, right? But I still believe that a very significant contribution to the economy and the society comes from, you know, following the right strategy, right? Mm -hmm. So catching things early on. And I guess maybe it's also, you know, part of our, I guess, I don't know, upbringing or 
maybe the culture in tech, uh, move fast and break things, not mm-hmm. give much thought to, to things and somehow things will work out and positive thinking and and all kinds of stuff. And essentially what I've realized after being in the space of entrepreneurship for many years, and because through my work, I had exposure to many different types of companies, is that while this system for some people, it might work, it sounds a bit like bland experimentation. And I've seen many successful people who have been successful in this space because of the following formulas. So if, for example, you run a business and you want data to be a component of this, you don't just try random shit and hope that something's mm-hmm. going to come out. You know, you're just going to follow a formula. You go to the expert, you follow this formula. If you want to create a business in a certain sector, you know which formulas work, then you just follow the formulas because you just have this 360-degree view. Mm-hmm. But I guess many, many founders, especially early stage, they just, you know, don't think this way. Yeah, I think that that statement, however beautiful and simple it is, move fast and break things, I think it it misses out that actually those people who are doing very well using that tactic are probably doing those things with some sort of strategy or some sort of something, you know, it's not just, as you say, just blindly going into something. So um, yeah, uh, that's, that's the danger with with succinct statements like that. It's, it's not, not as not quite what it seems, you know. So is there, is there like a, a blueprint in the same sense as, you know, to follow your analogy, if I were to stop smoking, stop drinking, eat healthily, get some exercise, is, is there a similar sort of analogy of things you need to do to get healthy with data science? Yes, absolutely. And this is the kind of things I'm working on. Now with the Tesseract Academy, uh, we're planning to spend the next six to nine months creating frameworks for data science for data strategy, we already have this, but it's being revised, the data strategy canvas, data-driven product development and project management in AI and data science. We're covering all those topics. And this is our goal, essentially, because I think that I realized I had many conversations with clients and they kind of repeat themselves. And uh, something which I came to, to understand is that I, I guess this is something I learned in business school, is that some of those frameworks, which can seem a bit fluffy, like the business model canvas and, mm. you know, a SWOT analysis and all those things. I mean, they're still fluffy, don't get me wrong, but they can be very useful because they can help someone structure their thoughts. Mm. And I'm aiming to do the same thing for data science. Um, I've put some of those things in in um, in my book, The Decision Makers Handbook to Data Science, but I want to take this to the next level and make these frameworks more accessible and, and promote them. Because, you know, like think about, I guess another good example in the space of tech is um, methodologies like Agile and Scrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, depending on who you ask, they might sound some, somewhat fluffy. Some people might not like uh, following every rule to the letter. Uh, but in one way or another, I think they've helped many companies become more successful than they would have otherwise been without them. And I mm. think the same the same thing holds with data, data science. You know, software... Math, algorithms, they're intangibles. And when something is intangible, uh, we tend to communicate about that something in a very inefficient way with many informational asymmetries between all of the all, all channels. And quite often with software, with data, we realize something's wrong only when things are really wrong. You know, it's not <laughs> like you're building a construct, a building, and you're very quickly going to figure out that, yeah, something's totally wrong here. You know, this, this thing is going down. Um, which goes back to what I mentioned. It, it usually takes around two years for a company to realize they've screwed up with their data collection strategy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And 
Yeah, this this is some of the work that I'm doing and I'm going to continue doing in the next few years. Well, to, to use that sort of Scrum Agile parallel, you know, you do find a lot of organizations that think they're doing Scrum really well and actually they're doing it really badly. Do you get exposed to those as well? Like you, you have an organization that thinks it's really good at data science or is that not something that you tend to see because you're mostly working from that sort of giving the, the base advice of like they don't have any data science or they've realized that they've screwed themselves. Yeah, I've seen organizations who think they're doing well with data collection and management and mm. then they are in this process of adopting data science and then they realize that they've been collecting data without having a primary use case in mind. They were mm. just collecting data for the sake of it and they've essentially wasted three, four years worth of data collection efforts, right? Mm. Yeah. So, and, and I guess because these organizations, these are the people that will hire me, Right. So it's either these people or this same company at the very beginning of the data collection process, which is the ideal scenario. Because if if, a, if this company already had three data scientists, then they, they would have fixed things in one way or another if they had a team of two, three, four, five data scientists working on those problems. Mm. And I know it will be different for each company that, you know, whatever the business is, but is there, a, is there like a blueprint of like, this is data that you should collect versus data you shouldn't bother collecting? Uh, so there's always this uh, motto, the more is better. So I think it's rarely a case of, you know, this data, you shouldn't collect it. I, I guess there's a legal reason as to why you shouldn't collect it. However, um, the, one of the challenges is how you collect the data, how you store it, how is it to process. And I guess the most common theme is data being stored in a poor format and data, you know, there are some data points which could have been there, but but they're not. Right? Mm. So for example, you know, maybe you want to um, get data, I don't know, from a retailer and then you realize they've not been tracking the marketing campaigns very well. Right? So they don't know when a marketing campaign took place. So these kind of, of things, they can be very, very, you know, they can, they can happen quite often and, and they're pretty bad. Again, I think it goes back to the fact that if you had someone from the beginning to advise you on that, you could have made the most out of your data and you didn't. Mm. So if you're out there and you're starting a company, pick up a copy of Stellius's book and then we'll go from there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good start. We can attend some of our free events. We're organizing free events with the Tesseract Academy all the time, like the AI clinic, uh -huh. mm. uh, running uh, every month, once or twice a month. Um, and then there's also another free event, a short introduction to data science for decision makers. Um, which is essentially a 30-minute presentation to the concept of data science coaching, as I call it. Uh, and then we also run some paid workshop and, you know, other things, consulting services, et cetera. So we mm. talked about the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the decision-maker side of, you know, getting involved with data science, but how does an aspiring data scientist get started? Uh, well, that's a great question because I've actually helped educate and I still do help educate data scientists, either through the work I'm doing through some universities, either through a bootcamp I'm mentoring, or sometimes through my own programs. I occasionally run programs every other month, uh, like with really graduate-friendly prices for those who just want to dip their toes into the waters of data science. Uh, and I think there's a lot of content out there in data science and what really sets programs apart is the support you get, like the mentoring. Mm. And this is something which I also, which, 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 this is my focus in my programs. Uh, because 
you know, if, if you just want to find good content on data science and machine learning and, and Python, you can find loads of content for free. Yeah, you, you don't need a teacher for that. Uh, but if you want someone who understands the space beyond that, mm-hmm. either on a technical level, that is how things work, or on the business level, like how do I actually get a job in this area, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> then you do need a mentor. I mean, it's not like you need a mentor, but really it's going to help you get there faster. If I had a mentor maybe, you know, like 10 years ago, I would have... Uh, moved faster <laughs> across many different sectors because data science doesn't really uh, exist in a silo. It, data science is something which exists because it adds value to other things, right? To other sectors, to verticals, to departments. So you can't just say, oh, I'm doing data science in the same way that you can say, oh, I'm a dentist, I fix teeth. You know, it doesn't work <laughs> this way. <laughs> yeah, with the Tesseract thing, do you have like... Um... I'm I'm piecing what that is. Do you have like a like an open forum or a Slack group or something where people can dip in and and? Chat oh yes, absolutely. We set this up, um, let's say, a bit experimentally a couple of uh, months ago, and now we're actually planning to to open this up. Uh, so you're more That's than cool. welcome if if you want to join, uh, because we're aiming to to create some kind of of community from people that that attend our events. Uh, obviously, the paid ones, but also some of the free ones. You know, because we understand that some people might be a bit um, afraid of taking the next step. Funny enough, for example, I have, I have a client. He's a good guy, but he's a bit like risk averse. And <laughs> he's, I don't know, you, you have to try and do everything to convince him that data science can actually work. And I can sympathize with him because I think for many people, it, it is such an intangible thing that mm-hmm. they might be a bit scared of it. So yeah, we're thinking to actually open up the community to, to anyone who's interested so they can just ask questions and, you know, I can be there to answer. Mm-hmm. Is, is there is there any... Uh... Is there any prerequisites? Like, do you need to be technical? I mean, how do you get started in that sense? Do you, do you need to know Python or? Uh, no, uh, no, I'm talking about the community for, um, you know, I'm, I'm talking about the community for decision makers, right? Sure, so sure. People who actually have business problems. Mm. We do have a community for people who want to learn data science, but this is actually for the people who buy our courses uh, because otherwise I'm afraid I might get flooded with a thousand people asking me, you know, which <laughs> version of Python to install and I won't be able to cope with it. But I guess something like Discord, you've got a bunch of data scientists at all levels. You know, it's not necessarily you that needs to be the one to answer those questions. It's you're you're just facilitating a, a discussion and, and whatever. I think that would be really helpful for people just getting involved in it and dipping into a conversation here and there, or just observing conversations between between data scientists. I think. Yes, absolutely. Be- I guess I'm not using Discord that much simply because I'm on like on so many different messaging platforms. I've only used Discord if someone has <laughs> asked me to use Discord for a project. Uh, but yeah, this could work. I mean, and also we organize some free events for those who want to learn da- data science. So we we had, for example, a speaker uh, like a few months back from who did his PhD in Berkeley, a very good guy, very smart, and he mm. did some Python tutorials on anomaly detection. Right, we had like sixty, seventy people showing up. So I think sometimes it's even doing these things which can cool. just bring awareness of some things you can do in Python, and then people can just try to learn more on their own. Uh, and you know, if someone just if someone emails me, I'm always going to answer uh, a question. Uh, but obviously, the most one of the most effective ways I've found to like create some kind of community, simply because I'm involved in so many things, is to run events and then you know invite people over to to Slack. Hmm. So why is it always Python? <laughs> <laughs> what is it about Python? <laughs> yeah, it's just um, a very easy language. 
uh, that, that's it basically. Mm. And it's very good for prototyping. It has many similarities with MATLAB and R, oh, yeah, who used to be the main contenders for data analysis. So it came mm. up as a natural contestant for this space. Java and C and C++ as well, or C Sharp, all those languages, they're not that good for prototyping experimentation. They're good for building proper chunks of software. And somehow Python, not only it's easy, but then there were many attempts, successful attempts to make it faster. Uh, so even the, yeah. you know, so actually from prototyping, now we've moved on to production. And in many cases, there's, you know, for many companies, there's not much an incentive to do things in languages other than Python. For machine learning, that is. And now with MLOps and all those developments, you can expose an API over that's been built in Python. And then the rest of the software can be in Java or C Sharp or whatever you prefer. And it works fine. Now, if you really care about speed, maybe you're still going to use C, right? But that's, you know, mm. that's great. I like C. But I honestly don't remember when was the last time I had to use it, honestly. Well, it's handling memory and things like that. Yeah, 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 exactly. I think I'd rather avoid. <laughs> yeah, but then again, you you have things like TensorFlow, for example, uh, that's like very well optimized, and you have like GPUs optimized for you know neural networks and all that. So then the question is, okay, so they really need to go down to C, and yeah. because data scientists they deal more with the algorithmic side of things and the analysis. Um, so if you can do this without having to worry about other things, uh, then you just go for it, you know. Well, it's interesting you mentioned about prototyping. So does a lot of uh, data science-related programming tend to be quite short-lived in its lifespan because you're working through data analysis and you're trying new things a lot? Yeah, I think one of the one of the key differences between data science and traditional software development is that data science tends to be very iterative. So you're just trying as, um, slightly different things one after another, and you hope to find a good solution. It's like a bunch of educated guesses in many cases, which is different to software development, where there can be more of a plan. Right, you're gonna do A and then B and then C, and that's gonna be architected in this way. That's why data science code can many times seem quite messy. Some people write to like to write their code in uh, notebooks, which are quite messy. Uh, so data scientists do not write code in a proper way, if you know what I mean. <laughs> So it's good for an unstructured coder. Yeah, it's good for it's you know the way that data scientists write their code is similar to the way that some mathematician might be trying to find solutions to sure. some kind of yeah, proof. Yeah. You know, you just write something and then you tear the paper and you throw it in the bin and then you try something else out. It's it's not like you're writing a, a fiction novel, you know, with some kind of structure mm. and prose. Obviously. Once the time comes to deploy something, you need to clean up your code. Uh, but mm -hmm. there are many data scientists who are not that great in doing this. I've, I've reviewed the code of many people who are like, you know, the, the code is just not structured in a nice way. And I think I've fallen in this pattern myself a few times because uh, when your main task is to make, to build a model that can predict something, that's your core task, right? So if you do this, then you know the job is done, even if the code is ugly. So beautifying <laughs> the code and refactoring quite often comes as an afterthought, right? after you find the solution to the problem. No place for TDD then. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of these things, I guess, 
you know, you are actually dealing with huge data sets and there's a hell of a lot of analysis to do there. How do you optimize the code if there's this thing for being, you know, relatively unstructured? Because there's a huge amount of data to process there. Surely the actual compute power and how it's being used is important. Yeah, I mean, look, that, that, that's a very technical question. If, if you're dealing, th- there are tools and libraries and frameworks that help you with this. So, for example, if you can use PySpark to, to run computation in parallel or use Amazon SageMaker, and you don't have to worry too much about this because this happens at the back scenes. Mm. Now, if the time comes to deploy something and you care about micro-optimizing everything, then that, that's a different conversation. And there are also some other aspects which we didn't touch upon because I come from a frame of I'm a data scientist, I work with algorithms. We didn't talk about data engineering, right? So how do you make an efficient NTL pipeline, the choice of databases, all those things. So all these play a role. Yeah, I guess. I guess that's really an important part of it then is making sure that actually your data is in a good structure initially because that's going to make it more efficient to deal and handle it. Huge conversation. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Should we save that for another episode? <laughs> yeah, that's probably for another episode. Speaking of which, I might actually have to go soon because I have I hope to get vaccinated, guys. My second vaccine. Oh, good. Congratulations. Maybe we can follow this up and do a part two because I've actually really, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like we've left quite a lot on the table. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There are many topics to discuss. I mean, next time maybe we can talk about deep learning or the history of data science uh, mm. and who knows what else. I would be happy. I mean, I can even give you a draft of my third book and um, you can tell me if you like it be cool. because no one really agreed to, yeah, yeah. to read this yet. Um, I'm really hoping to find a publisher soon. You have no idea how long it took me to write this. It's 100,000 words. Wow. Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, send it across. We'll save that for part two and we'll definitely do a part two. Okay. Awesome. It was great talking to you guys. We'll speak soon. And wish me luck at the vaccination center. And uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, I hope you get uh, I hope you managed to get jabbed. Well done. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot, guys. I'll see you soon. Yeah. All right. Thanks very much then. Cheers.